85. We come this morning to our last sermon in a little mini-series on revival in the church as the elders considered together the things you're hearing in culture and maybe what seems like old news now that we're several weeks past of things happening at Asbury. We wanted to give you biblical truth to help you assess and process and think rightly about revival, biblically speaking, and questions that may have come to your mind as you heard of things happening elsewhere. Questions like, what is revival, and when is revival needed, and how does revival come, and and when it does come, what does it actually produce? Our two primary landing spots, as we've tried to answer those questions from Scripture, has been the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, and then the historical record of the expansion of the church in the book of Acts. In Acts, we, we saw how God worked through and by his spirit to, to powerfully pour out more grace to the Gentile world, using the apostles and the church and bringing Jews into the church and then expanding that to bringing many thousands of Gentiles into the body of Christ. And while he was doing that, we saw God building the church, and we saw the result of of the Spirit's outpouring being increased unity and love and fellowship and commitment to the Word and to prayer. We saw God powerfully work in history in the book of Acts. We saw that that's not always how God's Spirit works. God doesn't always do massive movements to, to bring in thousands or even hundreds of believers at a time. In fact, often in the book of Acts, we read of of faithful servants preaching the same gospel to a different crowd and facing severe persecution and opposition. And so we've come to the conclusion that, that revival is God's sovereign work under his sovereign authority, by which he chooses when and and where he'll pour out that extra measure of his grace through his spirit, through the preaching of his gospel. And where that will produce abundant spiritual awakening in the lost and abundant spiritual life in the church. When we went to Revelation in Revelation 2 and 3, we we saw about 50 to 60 years after the historical record of Acts, then the, the church being addressed and needing to be confronted by our Lord. Five of the seven churches in particular needed a, a gracious work of God to revive and renew them. They were in tremendous spiritual decline. They were in grave spiritual danger. And so Jesus, through his apostles' pen, writes to them and says to them, wake up, repent, turn back before it is too late. And so the question on the table this morning as we finish our series is this. If if we sense there is a spiritual decline, should we seek Revival Is that what Jesus was saying to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 to essentially to seek God's reviving and renewing work in their hearts? Or is revival something we should, should just more or less leave in the hands of our more than capable sovereign Lord? Just not think much about it. And, you know, if God chooses to, to enter in and, and give this extra measure of his grace, then great, we'll rejoice, but no need to worry about it. Well, if I believe that, then I wouldn't have much to say following. So you know I believe the first, that we should seek God's reviving, renewing work in our heart. And there is no greater example of God's people seeking God's reviving work than what we have before us in this song in Psalm 85. Psalm 85 is an expression of this desire in the children of Israel to revive, have themselves revived by God. They're in a state of, state of spiritual decline and depression. They're far from God. We're unsure of exactly at what point in history this is for them. It might have been at any point throughout the period of the kings when they had, had known some of his blessing and then through their idolatrous worship, they had found the judgment of God to be severe and they cried out to him to revive them again. It, it could be the time right after Daniel when Ezra and Nehemiah are entering back into the land and they're tasked with with rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple and restoring the people to their land and to the worship of God in their land. That could have been when they wrote this psalm and sung this song. We don't know exactly when, but we do know exactly what was going on. And what was going on is they were a desperate people. 
Their lives, spiritually speaking and physically speaking, were in total disarray. Their situation is that they were far from God and his blessings was, were far from them. And so they pen this song in the inspiration of the Spirit guiding the pen of the sons of Korah to be an example for how the people should seek revival, this desire for God's work. This desire for revival in this psalm is expressed in, in four action steps or, or four expressions of faith in people who long for God to revive their heart. So do the people of God need renewed and revived? Then here is a pattern for them. Here is, here's what they must do. If they're in a, a state of spiritual decline, this is the way to seek God's work of reviving their heart. I've established with you already, and I think you agree, I don't have to argue this, that the church in America is in a state of spiritual decline and trending towards spiritual death in desperate need of of God's reviving work. There's tremendous decay and debilitation in the church who claims to be the church of Christ in America. There's spiritual cancers eating away at her existence. And unless there's radical surgery in the church, under the precise hand of the Spirit of God, the church will certainly die in America. But frankly, that's a pretty easy target to hit, isn't it? I could almost throw a stone in any direction and hit a bullseye. I could give you example after example of how that's true around us. My concern this morning as your pastor is what's true in you, not what's true around you. My longing is for God in his kindness to help you see you as he sees you. And then by his grace to walk by faith to seek what this text calls us to seek. And so I wonder, do you need revived? Does your spiritual inner man need a work of God's grace? I wonder, are you cold toward the Lord? Are you cold toward the Lord? Are there expressions of your love for the Lord that you used to practice? But over time, you've, you've slacked off, you've lost interest, you've waned in your zeal for obedience to the Lord in that category. Maybe you used to be more fervent in, in prayer or more committed to the reading of the word or, or more desirous of studying the word or memorizing the word or reading good Christian literature or witnessing to the lost or discipling your own children or loving your wife well or serving faithfully in the ministry in the church. Whatever it is that God's called you to obey that you used to do with fervency, have you now grown cold? Grown cold? Have you lost your first love? Are you, brother or sister, compromised? Are you worldly? Do you love the things of this world and therefore are at enmity with God? Have you formed friendship with worldly influences? Have you let your spiritual guard down? Is the the world's way of thinking and loving and choosing pressing down upon you and you're just, frankly, tired of the battle and you're, you're letting it have its way with you? And it's, it's, that pressure is shaping what you now think and what you love and what you choose because you don't want to guard your heart anymore. It's just too much work. What does your leisure time, discretionary time, time you get to choose what you do with your day, what does that time, how you spend it, say of that which you are worshiping? Have you made accommodations in your worldview and in your daily practice for your flesh because you're just exhausted with the battle? You're tired of the fight and it's just easier to give in at this point. Do spiritual stumbling blocks keep tripping you up? Are you caught in sin? And you don't know how to get out. You're snared and it's ruining you. Are you living a compromised life? Are you, brother or sister, complacent? Do you tolerate false teaching? Do you moderate your commitment to the truth because you have a relationship in your life that you don't want to lose? And if you took a stand on that truth, you would lose that relationship. 
Are you weary of, of having to exercise discernment at every turn? And it can be exhausting. Do you take in anything that claims to be Christian and assume it must be good because it's coming to you in the name of Christ? Or maybe you have enjoyed the protection of God's elders placed over you by his kindness and protecting you and guarding the flock and you've just grown lazy. Assuming they'll do their job, I don't need to contend for the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints, are you complacent? Interestingly, as I studied that question and I wrote six pages of notes that won't come out in the sermon, so I'll have to preach some other time, but two of the pages of notes was me working through the scripture of how concerned is scripture that we be on guard against false teaching. As I read through the New Testament, and I, I did a quick survey, flipping pages of passages I knew would talk about it, I found several passages in every New Testament letter, except for two. And, and in those two, you probably could make a case that it's there, just said a different way. God is concerned that we, as the church, are zealous for the truth and guarding the truth? Are you complacent? Are you self-confident? Is your Christian life mostly dependent upon you and your effort and your willpower? Are you quick to do and slow to pray? Do you go about your responsibilities in life, at home, at your job, in church, in society? Do you do all that with, with little or no thought of your own insufficiency? Of your own inability, apart from the grace of God, I can't do this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Have you fallen into the rut of, of prayerlessness? Do you show evidence of, of self-confidence and that you have an unteachable spirit? Do you think you've got it figured out? You don't need to be taught. Are you quick to spout your opinions rather than quick to hear from others? Do you believe your own press reports in ministry when they, they meet you after great and effective ministry and tell you how wonderful you are as a servant of the Lord and, and you believe that report? Instead of immediately turning it to the Lord in praise and reminding yourself of your own insufficiency and weakness, are you self-confident? And are you Christless? Are you comfortable in your system of religious practice? Is what you do as a part of the body of Christ here just part of a system that salves your conscience, that you must be okay with God because you do what you do? Is your spiritual state a reflection of our present culture, which would, I would describe as apathetic self-sufficiency? Does your inner man reflect the, the milieu of the culture around you in that way? Is Christ on the outside looking in? Do you, you actually have the life of Christ in you? Are you producing the life of Christ in fruit out of you as the Spirit works upon you? Or are you playing the game of, of spiritual life by taping fake fruit to your spiritual tree? Has Christ ever healed your spiritual blindness? Has he ever clothed your spiritual nakedness? Has he ever provided for you eternal spiritual riches? Have you, my friend, ever been born again? I wonder what is the state of your soul this morning? I don't mean these questions to be discouraging or disheartening. I take them directly from Revelation 2 and 3 where we saw these churches and that's what was true of them. And I'm convinced that Christ put those words there because that's what's true in every church of every age. There's some of that in all of us. And so as we think on these biblical questions and follow the biblical pattern of giving prayerful self-examination to our soul, I ask you, what is the state of your heart this morning? As I honestly ask myself those questions this past week, and in God's kind providence, I was in Psalm 119, 59 to 60 for, Sunday, or for Wednesday night. And as I worked through and I saw the psalmist give attention to his ways, and then he says, and then I was urgent in my obedience. And I realized there are several things in my life that I have grown dull on. The urgency has, has waned away. 
Things I used to be quick to obey the Lord in, I've slacked off on, and, and my heart was in need of and is in need of renewing and reviving. I ask, is, is yours? If it is, Psalm 85 is the text you must read. You must know. You must follow. It says this, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. You withdrew all their wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Psalm 85 is composed of, of four stanzas and each stanza puts before us a, another step in seeking this reviving work of God upon our heart. This is not a, a four-step treatment plan to, to spiritual declension or spiritual depression. You just apply these four steps and you're out. That's not what this is. More, they're, they're like faith-filled responses. Steps you can take by faith, seeking God's grace. Especially when, when God seems distant to you, when spiritual life is, is hard and filled with duty instead of delight and you're burdened with the the sins of your own choosing and longing for help, you must remember. You must pray. You must listen. And you must hope. Verses one through three, we see the first one, we must remember. It gives us that first faith-filled response when we conclude that we are in need of God's reviving work, that, that the land is torn down and it's in a mess and, and we're in a problem spot and our hearts are far from the Lord. And when we come to that conclusion, we must start here. We must remember. Well, what must we remember? The, the first three verses are a rehearsing by the psalmist of all that God has done for his people in the past. And, and what has he done for them? Well, verse one, he's shown them great favor. He brought them out of Egyptian slavery and reestablished Jacob's sons and their descendants in the promised land and blessed them and caused them to prosper. But that, that great work of, of physical blessing required an even greater work of spiritual blessing, right? And that's what he describes in verses two and three. He had to forgive their sins. He had to provide atonement. He had to cover over their iniquities. He had to withdraw his wrath from them, his righteous anger, his justified anger at his own people for their rebellion against him. Notice how the psalm does not focus on God's physical blessings of verse 1, but on the spiritual blessings of verses 2 and 3. This is some of the, the strongest salvation language in two verses in the whole Old Testament. They speak of the forgiveness of God and the atonement that God provided in covering over our sins the propitiation of his wrath, the, the satisfaction of his wrath through his own provision. All of this is talked about in those two verses. These are, these are gospel realities. This is the Old Testament. So these are, are gospel foreshadowings, glories of the grace of God blessing his Old Testament people as a foretaste of, of the explosion of grace that's going to come through his Son. And they point ahead to, to the glories of Christ and his finished work. 
And before the psalmist ever dares to ask for a, a new, fresh, reviving work of God, before he ever dares to say, Lord, return us to you, he remembers what God has done in the past. He turns his eyes to past grace and to former mercies. And he talks about them in, in the greatest of ways. He exposes the depths of the goodness of his God. Who is like the Lord our God that he would forgive your sins? Friend, that is your greatest issue this morning. There's a lot of problems in this life. None of them compare to how will you be forgiven of your sin? How will you be made right with the God who made you? What is the way? And the, the biblical answer does not start with, nor is it ever dependent on you. The biblical answer is God, but God gave his only son, sacrificing himself on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins, for the fullness of your atonement, to propitiate his just wrath against you, all of it taken upon our Lord Jesus so that you can be forgiven. Friends, you need to understand that if your heart needs revived, it's because you have forgotten grace and mercy. If your heart is cold, it's because you've, you've moved past the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're slow to obey, it's because you're not thinking of, of the high cost of Jesus' obedience for you to secure your redemption. Revivals are always begun with the flames of a former fire. It has been rightly said that memory is the handmaid of revival. Seeking a present work begins by remembering a former one. And a revival is fueled by a reminding of and a returning to the old, old story of Calvary and all of its depth and all of its glory. Your spiritual man that is in decline needs to be reminded of the high cost and of the amazing work and of all the spiritual blessings that are now yours in Jesus Christ, your Lord. Having taken your eyes off of a bleeding and dying Savior, suffering under the crushing weight of your condemnation, your heart now grows cold because you've forgotten his love for you. And so you must remember. Every revival on the individual and then on the corporate level must start here with a remembering of God's great grace and mercy in the forgiveness of sins. That, frankly, to me, has what has been so concerning about what I've heard coming out of the Asbury University revival. I come back to this because I've mentioned it a few times and you just need to know what things were being said there and so you can rightly discern because the biblical pattern is to remember and return to the gospel. That revival, as you may have researched and know already, was not begun by a, a spirit-filled sermon proclaiming the glories of the gospel of Christ. There were no heresies that I found in that sermon on Romans 12 that started this revival at Asbury, but there was no clear gospel either. There was no declaration of, of man's sinfulness and of God's intervention in our sinfulness to rescue us through the sacrifice of his son. As the revival blossomed and more people came and, and more testimonies were given, it became clear that the, the predominant desire of those in attendance was the experiencing of a spiritual high. A renewal of, of religious vigor dependent, it seemed, mostly on, on atmosphere and circumstances. Most who went to be a part of it, by their own admission, were there to seek a, a fresh wave of, of the Holy Spirit's power to crash upon the shore of their life and, and energize them with a new feeling of, of spiritual power. Those are words they said. The predominant view of, of sin, not that I quoted them, but that's in essence what they were saying. The predominant view of sin that seemed to win the day at the Asbury Revival was that sin was something which victimizes you. 
that comes upon you and traps you and, and needs to be cast out of you. There's a lot of talk throughout the revival of, of being freed from the trauma and the oppression of, of hard things and, and of the sin of, of others and even of your own troubled life. And of that being cast out, and especially casting out the evil spirits that are responsible in that life. It's a, a territorial view of sin. That territorial spirits have power to oppress you and dominate your life. And so the gospel then was reduced over time to, to God's power to heal your trauma. For Jesus to, to take your pain and to overcome your oppression and to liberate you from those hard things. And the desire of those, it seemed, at that revival was that through the experience of being there and having some fresh wave of the Holy Spirit that they, they would then have this higher spiritual plane and higher spiritual experience. That, of course, is not the gospel. Nor, frankly, is it an accurate description of the Christian life. The Christian life is, is not moved along by these spiritual experiences which free us from oppressive spirits through casting out demons that give us a greater spiritual high. That's not scriptural, nor is it practical. Rather, Scripture is really clear that the Christian life is a constant battle for growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ, right? This is why Paul, when he gets to the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, says, I have fought the good fight. He's persevered and Walked through it well. This continuous battle with the the world, the flesh, and the devil are not overcome through emotion-laden and emotion-driven experiences by which we passively receive some spiritual energy that gives us new power to overcome. Rather, they're overcome as we persevere in faith, rooted in the word, depending on the Lord in prayer, walking in the truth, abiding in Christ, fellowshipping with the saints, exhorted and encouraged by one another, walking by the Spirit's power to say no to the flesh and yes to God. And that's very normal. That's very ordinary. It's not very flashy. It doesn't do well on a billboard or on social media. But friends, this is the way. This is... Matthew to Revelation, the way Christ presented for us to follow him. And frankly, this revival does not happen if we are unclear about sin and about the amazing grace of God. And that's what I love about Psalm 85. It's written for us to show us how to seek the renewing work of God when we are struggling by showing us that our struggle starts with our own sinfulness and is helped by God's merciful kindness. So we must remember. We also must pray. That's in verses 4 through 7. Notice how the tune of the psalm changes. The first three verses are all about you did this, you did that, you forgot, you, you forgave, you stayed your wrath. And then in verses 4 to 7, it turns into request. Restore us and revive us and return us. So the psalmist being reminded of all that God had done to forgive sin now is compelled to ask God to do it again because that's what you need. You don't need a new work of the Spirit's power which you haven't known before. That's not what revival is. You need a renewed work of a power and a work he's already done in you. That's the nature of reviving, bringing back that which has slipped. God's people in Psalm 85 have lost their way. They've let idolatry come into the land. God has his judgment upon them, the oppression of another nation. And now in their hour of trial and, and difficulty, they remember his past mercies and they're constrained to ask for present mercy. The idea in, in verse four of restore is that God would, would turn them around and bring them back. And you can imagine that in the physical land sense. Turn, turn us around from our captivity and our oppression and bring us back to the, the bounty of your blessings. It's combined with the, the request for God to turn his indignation away from them. Remove your wrath from us. Turn us around and turn away your anger. And then in verse 5, he reasons with God and he says, listen, will you always be angry with us? 
Because there was a time, remember, when you weren't angry with us. Though we've given you plenty of reason to be. There there was a time when, when you weren't angry. Will you always be as it is now? We've given you lots of reasons to be angry. We understand that. We're not asking for you to stop being angry because we're so good. We're asking you to show mercy and turn your wrath from us because certainly you won't always be mad at us for our sin. In other words, the question is, Lord, you've done it before. Why not now? Will you please do it again? Verse six, he asked the Lord to revive his people once again. That's a, a word that obviously can mean a a resurrection from the dead. It also is used to to bring back someone who's really sick, to to revive them to a a healthy physical state. And so the psalmist is looking at the the sad, spiritually decimated state of things in the land and in God's people, and and he writes this song for his people to, to sing and to pray to God. And you know what he's doing here? He's teaching the people of God how to think about sin their own sin, and how to think about God working in their lives in light of that sin. And he's training them to look to God in full dependence for his revival of their hearts. That's instructive because he doesn't teach them how to manipulate God through some practice. He doesn't call them to the pursuit of some spiritual experience or pushing the right spiritual buttons and pulling the right spiritual levers. He teaches them, listen, God is your only hope. And if your heart is going to be revived and your your spiritual man is going to be renewed, God must do it. And you need his help. And so pray to him for his mercy. This is how he prays in verse 7, that basis of his pleading for revival is the steadfast love of the Lord. He doesn't teach them to plead with the Lord, listen, Lord, we've repented. We've turned from those sins. We we will not do that anymore. We've gotten rid of the idols, so Lord, help us now. Give Give us some help here. No, they don't plead with God for mercy based on their merits. Then it would no longer be mercy. He says, your only hope in this is the steadfast love of the God of your salvation. And so pray to him in light of his steadfast love, which you were reminded of in verses 1 to 3, right? And knowing that steadfast love that you've experienced in the past, return to that love and plead with the Lord on the basis of his love for you. And so this has to be our practice if we find ourselves in a depressed spiritual state laden with sin in your mind and heart and actions, having a love for the Lord that's grown cold and detached and compromised with the world and careless about false teaching and self-confident on your spiritual journey, what must you do? You must remember and you must pray. You must beg of God for his mercy and for his reviving work. Ask him to turn you around and to turn his wrath from you And did you notice what the stated result of that revival will be in verse 6? Kind of skipped over it to verse 7, but look what he says. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? This prayer for revival is dependent on God. It's a, a prayer for mercy based on his steadfast love. But it's also focused on God. A to Z, the prayer is about God. Beginning and end, alpha and omega, it's about God. So based on your kindness, show us mercy. And when you show us mercy... Do it so that we can rejoice in you, so we can worship you and praise you and be glad in God. This, by the way, is one of the surest signs of a true revival. Joy in the Lord. Spurgeon says of this phrase that joy in the Lord is the ripest fruit of grace. All revivals and renewals lead up to it. By our possession of it, we may estimate our spiritual condition. It is a sure gauge of inward prosperity. A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers or day dawn without light, end quote. So you could this morning ask, do you have joy in the Lord? How would you know if he's at work to revive and renew you? 
you would have a fresh joy in the Lord. You would delight in his provisions and take comfort in his promises. You would gladly submit to his providence, even when you can't make sense of it. You would rejoice in his love as you remember his past works. Are you this morning seeing fresh evidences of that love for you that that make your heart leap inside of you? Like gazing upon the sunrise as if you hadn't seen it for 10 years. And you're awed by the, the handiwork of God and the glory of God seen in a scene we get the privilege of seeing every day but you're caught with it with with fresh vividness and you're stirred by the goodness and the loving kindness of God and your heart can't help but sing to the Lord. Friend, are you you glad in God? You take joy in him. Is there a song in your heart that you're not even sure why it's totally there, but it's a song of praise to the Lord? This is the goal of praying for revival, that you would once again worship the Lord like you ought, with joy. We also must listen, must remember and pray, and we also must listen into the spiritually depressed people of God who are seeking for a revival. The assumption here in verses 8 and 9 is that God will speak. And so the psalmist says, let me hear what the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. They've been asking God to listen to them through prayer. And now the psalmist says, and now you must expect to be talked to by God through his word. He says this will be a word of peace to their troubled hearts, which in times of spiritual decline, can only really come from the Lord, correct? When your heart is in upheaval, spiritually speaking, there are no other words that bring you peace. The gospel of the culture does not settle your heart in the storms of life. The gospel of your inner man telling you you've got this and you're enough and you're okay and you'll get through this are not enough to bring peace to you when the waves are higher than you can see and about to crash over your boat. The only words that bring peace to your depressed and spiritually declined soul are the very words of God himself. And so the psalmist teaches the people in this state of spiritual confusion and trouble of our own making, we need the peace-giving words of the Lord. Having created the problem, we need the Lord to fix it. Let him speak. And this has always been the way revival works. I've told you this. If you get nothing else from five sermons, take this with you. Revival and renewal of heart never, ever happens apart from the word of God. It is always his word by his spirit powerfully moving in spiritually depressed souls. You'd see this for yourself if you looked back to 2 Chronicles 30 and you read of the revival in Hezekiah's day where he led them to fear the Lord and submit to God's word. They hadn't been. And he stood before them, he said, no, enough's enough. We're gonna follow God. We're gonna obey his word and we're gonna gather and worship the Lord like he said we should. 2 Chronicles 30 verse 12 says that the hand of the Lord was upon Judah to give them a heart to obey. That's revival. That's renewal. How did that happen? That happened because a leader in the people stood up and said, enough of our sinfulness, return to the Lord. Run to his word and listen to him. And God gave them a heart to obey. If you kept reading that text, you'd see then an explosion of great joy. As they worshiped the Lord, they they had to plan to meet another week in celebration of the Lord. There was great joy. Same thing happened in the days of Josiah. In 2 Chronicles 34, you can read of it later. They are led by him to follow the word of the Lord and purge the land of idolatry. But then they find the book of the law. You remember that? And Josiah hears they found the book of the law. What does he do? Oh, good, I hope it validates everything I've already done. No, they read it and he tears his clothes because he knows we're in deep trouble. 
we have not done all that that book has said, and we deserve God's judgment. And he, in dust and ashes, repents before the Lord. You see, the word of God had its powerful effect upon Josiah's heart and mind and also with God's people, and they were revived. Same thing happens in Nehemiah's day. Remember, they come back to build the wall, and it's not going well. And the people of Nehemiah's generation are, are slacking off on the job, and it's a, a dire situation. And you remember what he does in chapter 8? This is Ezra. Stand in front of the people. They're all going to stand, and you're going to read the word. And they stand there all day reading the law of God, and Ezra and his priests and his fellow priests go, and they teach the people the sense of the word of God. And, and what does God do? He revives his people. They're so broken. It's supposed to be a, a, a feast of celebration. They're so broken, they, they can't even have joy in their hearts. And the priests have to say to them, no, listen, God's forgiven you. Have joy. Worship him in joy. You see, the way that God's people tangibly seek God's reviving work is to listen to his word. Remember his great grace to save you and to forgive you. As you gaze upon Calvary, pray to that God of mercy who's made it so clear in the sacrifice of his son that he is the God of your salvation. As you gaze upon that dying Savior, then submit yourself to his word. Listen to his truth. Come under the authority of all that he has said. The psalmist describes this as those who fear the Lord. And the result of that at the end of verse 8 is that they will not turn back to their folly. In other words, this isn't just a, a listen to the word like, you know, in Scripture reading this morning, you, just, you heard it and you moved on. No, this is a, a listen to the word to, to hear it, take it in, receive it, and obey it. To do what God has said, to keep your way from the former ways of foolishness. Verse 9, the psalmist says that this, this salvation, this work of restoring and reviving God's people is is near to those who fear the Lord. That's a promise and a glorious one you ought to hold to. So if you remember and pray and listen, those are evidences of your fear of God, your awe of God, your love for God, your worship of God. As you submit your life to God by humbly seeking him in his word, the text says God is delighted to do this work for you. His salvation is near to you. I love how the, the psalmist speak of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 31 verse 19 says that the goodness of God is stored up for those who fear him. That's a promise. The goodness of God is stored up for those who fear the Lord. Psalm 33 18 says that God's eyes look upon those who fear him. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 17 says that God's loving kindness is great and from everlasting to everlasting for those who fear him. Psalm 112, verse 1 says that the man who fears the Lord is greatly blessed by the Lord. Psalm 115, 11 says that the Lord is the, the help and the shield of those who fear him. Psalm 149, verse 145, verse 19 says that the Lord will Fulfill the desires of those who fear the Lord. Psalm 147.11 says that the Lord favors those who fear him. Beloved, what is the key mark of those who fear the Lord? It is those who gladly submit to his word, who listen to him in worship-filled submission. We must remember, we must pray, and we must listen, we also must then hope. The last step of faith in this psalm is to hope. We must hope in the Lord. The psalmist had looked at the past in verses 1 through 3, prayed about the present in verses 4 through 9, and now in verses 10 to 13, he looks to a future day. He turns his gaze ahead of time in the timetable of God's purpose and plan. He looks to the day when God's going to create a, a perfect harmony in every way with mankind. These verses are, are really a look to the final, glorious, endless, eternal day. He says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. 
Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The psalmist has a settled hope in the character of God, namely his steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. The psalm teaches God's people to to look ahead to the fullness of God's perfections that one day will be seen in their entirety in the new heaven and the new earth. And so he's praying for this righteousness and this peace to come together in God's reviving work in their present hour. He's longing for God to to forgive his people by his steadfast love. He's he's longing for God to uphold his perfect righteousness, but also to to give them the blessing of a renewed land. He's longing for God to, to bring the the present circumstances into line with his steadfast love for his people. And so he says in verse 11, the ground will spring up with evidence of the faithfulness of God. And God will look down from the sky with perfect righteousness and the Lord will give what is good to his people and bless them with an abundant harvest. What's the psalmist doing here? What's he teaching us? He's teaching us that God's people need to set their hope for renewal completely on the Lord and, and look beyond the present. That this hope is, is ultimately a look forward to a, a fuller answer to the problem of sin in God's people. A problem that, that cannot be answered by the sacrificing of, of bulls and lambs in the temple. A problem that required the sacrificing of the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. It's at the cross of of Christ that we see the greatest expression of God's perfections named in this psalm, meeting together and kissing each other. Don't walk away thinking that God's perfections are at war with each other. That his righteousness is at war with his steadfast love, and it's at the cross that that Jesus finally convinces them to be friends. That's not what the psalm is saying. There's no war in the character of God. It's infinite in all of its glory, in all of God's perfections. What the psalmist means is that our knowledge of these things, because in our mind, how is it true? How is God just and the justifier of those who believe in him? How can he forgive you of your sins and be a just God? Because... Of Christ because of the cross and so it's at the cross we see these perfections meeting and in perfect fulfillment displaying the fullness of God's glory this cross work of Jesus has eternal ramifications you know this but think on it for a minute the bounty and the the blessing of God's reviving work has a an ultimate fulfillment on the last day and that's what the psalmist is pointing you to he's, he's pointing ahead for you Kidner, in in his commentary on this verse, says that these four verses present one of the most satisfying descriptions of concord, of of unity, spiritual, moral, and material to be found anywhere in Scripture. Here is a picture of, of the glories of eternal peace with God in every way. And the psalmist puts it here to remind you that the redeeming work of God has a day in which it will be brought to its fullness, to its completion, where sin will be done away with, where, where death will be no more, where pain will be absent, where sorrow will melt away into eternal joy, when what we know in part will give way to the, the full reality, where we see now in a, a glass dimly, we will see face to face in eternity. Verse 13 is is essentially like John's statement at the end of the book of Revelation where Jesus promises, I'm coming back and I'm going to make all that true. And and John replies, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what the psalmist is saying in verse 13. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Like, let's go, Lord, we're ready. Bring that righteousness now is what the psalmist is saying. So I ask you, what does this teach us about revival? Revival. Well, it teaches us that there's a a greater hope in our longings and prayers for revival, even the right ones. 
a hope that transcends the ups and the downs of our spiritual journey, a, a hope that lifts our spiritual chins past the present difficulty so our eyes gaze to a future day and see a day coming when, when we don't have to just struggle through our desire for renewal. So if God in his kindness would pour his grace upon his people in answer to our prayers as we remember, pray, and listen, and he would do a great work of reviving our hearts individually and corporately, that would be glorious and imperfect, right? It would be good and not enough. It'd be a better bag than we hold, but it'd still be a mixed one. And we still would not know the fullness of our redemption and all of its joy. And so as you pray for revival, put your eyes further than the present moment and rejoice that there is a coming day when all these prayers, whether answered in part now, will be answered in full then. And take comfort and encouragement to keep persevering in this life as you look fully in the life to come. Beloved, do you need spiritual renewal? Remember, pray, listen, and hope. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word and its clarity. We say that almost every Sunday after we hear the word preached because it astounds us afresh, Lord, every week that you've been so clear. So thank you for your word and its purifying and cleansing effect upon our soul. We pray that you would continue your work in us and upon us and through us for the glory of your name. I pray especially for the souls among us who are most desperate in their need for your work of grace. Whether to be born again or to be revived and renewed in their spiritual life, Father, would you so capture them by your Spirit's power with your word that they must do business with their soul before you in this moment and fix their eyes of faith upon you alone. Lord, would you, by your grace, move among us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.